0: On this episode of Year One, we speak to Sonia, founder of Shopthelink.com, an online aggregator and lead generation platform that connects consumers with overseas merchants. Sony takes us on a wild journey from a remote blueberry farm to being banned from New York to her first successful startup, her exit, and her latest venture. This episode has it all, so sit back, buckle up, and enjoy the show. Welcome to Year One, hosted by me, Dioclopas, and my good friend, Satish Bala. On Year One, we speak to early-stage founders, business owners, and entrepreneurs about the highs and lows of the early years, the challenges and rewards, and everything else in between. So, without any further ado, let's get into this week's conversation. So, Sonia, our very first question that we ask anyone who comes on our podcast is, what happened in your life? That you realize that the root of entrepreneurship is for me. I'm not going to go down the traditional route. What was that? What was that moment? The pivotal moment for you?
1: Oh man, I don't know if there was ever a pivotal moment. I think back when I was in my twenties, I I was always chasing dreams. Dreams are the only thing that we have to work towards. I think it was actually when I came back from New York because I was chasing this dream of becoming the next. Oprah. Satish knows the story. I had a television radio career for a few years. I think it was about eight years. And I just got so sick and tired of constantly hitting this glass ceiling. And I moved back from New York and I had turned my blog into a digital marketing agency, which was one of two at that time on Google when you went to go search digital marketing. I think it was at that moment that i had found my calling so to speak and i think it was at that point there i was like okay so i guess this is what i've always been chasing this is ultimately it i don't need to look a certain way speak a certain way i don't need to report to anyone i don't need to go clock in hours because up until then i had done everything to hustle like i had bartended and i was a cocktail server and I was serving tables until one, two, three o'clock in the morning. And I would wake up at 6 a.m. to go do the Weather Channel. And it really caught up over eight years and it was exhausting. So if I was to quote unquote define a moment, I would say that sticks out for me in my mind. And then
0: just on that, so you said that you're always chasing a dream. So has that always been something in the back of your mind that you needed to do something for yourself?
1: I think there's Everything in hindsight always makes sense. Not in the moment. Looking back, I know that there is this pull within all of us and we have to listen to that pull, whether we call it chasing dreams or chasing visions. There's a saying, I think by Steve Jobs, which is let the vision pull you. And that's essentially another way of saying, let the dream pull you. So whatever it is that you feel this pull. And now with my second company, it's the same thing. I feel this pull. It's the only thing i have to keep going to keep motivated keep inspired things don't always go as you think that they're going to end up they never go as they as you had planned no matter how many manifestations and vision boards you can do but yeah i think that yeah it was, i hope that answers that question
0: yeah absolutely
2: so we've been around the block quite a bit now i've heard you speak on stages and in private with me on some of these topics but Pretend you're talking to my daughter, Layla. She's 14. How do you define entrepreneurship?
1: Oh, man. Yeah, we're going. But deep. like, I was going to say, I really like where this is headed. You mean for her generation right now? Or yeah. just if I was just to talk to her in this? No, because
2: the context is in our generation, entrepreneurship is really considered unemployment, Like you can't tell yeah. your parents. It's either you're studying or yep. somebody's paying you to work. Anything yep. you between, no matter how successful it was, it's, Waiting to get a job. Yeah. <laughs> right. But yeah. The generation, it's the opposite. Is like, what do I want to do? And then maybe I'll study. Maybe I'll work for somebody. And yeah. So the definition of entrepreneurship, I think, is really interesting now.
1: It's very interesting because these guys, their generation growing up, I don't think, I don't think the word entrepreneurship is going to be as sexy as we see it. I think for them, it's going to be a no brainer. Like, why the hell would I work for anyone? Duh. Like I had all these side hustles, dad. I'm I'm making more than you did in your first year of blah, blah, blah. So if I was to speak to her in this moment, I would just say, focus on understanding what it means to be disciplined because this generation is very scattered, right? They're all, they're doing too many things at the same time. So I would say, focus on getting disciplined. Are you writing this down? Really work on communication. They're. I have noticed more than ever in my career how important communication is uh, as a sales tool, as a communication tool, to help you close deals, to help you close venture capital, help you build relationships. And those are the two things. And I even say this to my stepson all the time. Focus on those two things, discipline and communication. And if you can get disciplined, then you can learn how to focus. You can learn responsibility. You can learn things like making your bed in the morning. And like, so that, I think that's what I would say to these guys, because they're not going to work for anyone. That's a given. But how well they're going to do this on their own, it's going to come to those two factors.
0: And I'll ask you quickly, Sonia. I mean, could you give us a little bit of your history? So when you decided to go out on your own, Where did it start and that progression from where you started to where? Because you've exited as well. This is your second business as well. So tell us that a little bit of the backstory, if you don't mind. And then I would like you to end it off and actually explain what the link is.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um,
2: Sonia, you can start with the moment we met and then start from there. It's a
1: very pivotal moment. Like, I think I remember that moment. I was so ready to just giving up and quitting. But like, how many times did we actually say that? We're like, oh, fuck it. I'm just gonna give up and quit, and then I literally then, said it
2: over the weekend, "I was yeah. like, school's I'm, going to be man. I got what am I trying to do? Changing the education system?
1: Honestly, who am I? Honestly, And then it's in those moments that the universe is like, no, nope, let me dang a little kid. Just free to give up, man. <laughs> let me give up. So I moved to Toronto when I was 24. So I was born and raised in Northwest Territories. I moved around all throughout BC. And then ended up growing up on a blueberry farm for about 20 years. And it was, it was very humbling because again, hindsight, and my husband always makes fun of me. He's you're such a farm girl is being raised on a farm, like we're not talking animals, we're talking blueberry plants. Like you have to harvest them and you have to pick Uh, them. And yes. And like, you have to, T- pick up the crates and you got to put them on the truck and then you got to deliver it and watching your parents go through that and struggling with if the crop season is going to be good is it going to fail are we going to make money to pay the mortgage this year really understanding those struggles growing up as a kid like it re- it revealed a lot my mom's working my dad's working they're also taking care of 10 acres of blueberry at the same time And we lived in the middle of nowhere. There was no buses. There was barely any cars. There was one house in front of us. And it was very interesting growing up from Northwest Territories to a blueberry farm. So I always knew that there was this whole other world outside of my little bubble. And I just always knew in my heart, even now if I was to open up my a journal from when I was like 16, 17, it says in there, it says, I will move to Toronto. I will move to New York. And so I think it was around 17, 18 that I came to Toronto for the first time. And then I had gone to New York as well. And I was like, I'm going to move here. I don't know how it's going to happen, but I'm moving here. And then I went to university, dropped out of my last year. I I couldn't do it. I was like, this is not for me. I don't even know where I'm going to end up at this point. And I think there was a huge part of me that knew that if I stayed in BC, I was going to end up married very young. I would end up not exploring my true full potential. And I, again, those polls, the vision polls, like I was just constantly getting them and I could not fight it until I think one day I just, the only way I was gonna get out of the house at the time because my parents were pretty strict was if I'd faked getting into some sort of a program or like a master's program or something because they didn't know I had dropped out of school. So I faked getting into a master's program at university, forgot, I don't know which university I made up, Fan into
2: a master's program.
1: It was <laughs> so bad. They threw me, I, I felt so terrible. Like, now obviously they know everything, but I felt so bad because they threw me this party. <laughs> I invited all my friends. And then, next thing I know, I'm off in Toronto by myself and I'm living out of the just from Hotel in the studio bachelor apartment. um I went with like 1200 bucks to live in a hotel back then. That's nuts. So, living out of this like contagious hotel like glorious apartment and my mom thinks I'm in school and she's but I'm in school technically because I was doing radio and television at Humber at the time but I wasn't doing my master's what she thought so I was doing what I wanted to do which was communications and like radio and television and so one day she I don't know how she found out she found out and she just cut me off. No like nothing. Like I had no access to any sort of credit cards or money or funding or anything. She's like, you figure it out. You made this decision. You made your bed. Now <laughs> if you want to live there, you find a job. She's like, but if you want to come home, like I'll help you out. And so I stayed and I was like, I'll fucking figure I was so pissed at her. I was like, I'll figure it out. I'll show you. <laughs> and so then I and I did. And that's that is honestly the best thing. That she ever did for me because it's not until that cord is cut and that's the number one thing in startup world is your cord has to be cut to any sort of cushioning or like that feeling of satisfaction or accomplishment for you to just keep going so I kept going and I got all these radio and television gigs the weather network I worked once I did some stuff at CBC I did some stuff at the BBC, which was linked to the South Asian radio station, and they had some shady thing going on. So I was like, it's okay. I'm learning radio. It's so good. I was terrible. It was really bad. Like I was scrounging for cash. But I would so I would serve from um, I remember like I would serve the lunch rush from 12 till three. And then I would go work my show and then I would come back to do the dinner rush. And then I would go to the weather network to intern for them in the morning. So like from one till five, and then I would come home, sleep super quickly and then go do the lunch rush again because I wanted it bad, badly. And then fast forward, I started this blog, and it was all of my experience in television and radio and helping people understand business and like how advertising and all of this works. And the blog started doing well. I, like I had two friends that were my writers who wrote with me and we wrote together. It started off, it was called Young and Sassy. It was like women in business. And then it turned into Use Us. And so by this time I had moved to New York because I still had this dream of becoming the next Brown Obra. And so I moved to New York and I, you can only stay three months at a time in New York. And then after three months, you got to go back because you can't overstay your stay. Otherwise, you're living there illegally. So I never overstayed my stay. I would always come back after three months. And while I was in New York, I had landed some crazy gigs. Like I remember one time I was hosting for Brooks Shields. I was doing, I was in like the studio with Diddy and 50 Cent one time. Like it was like my connections in New York are just, they ran so deep. It's really funny. Like I'm just like, how, what planet did I live on? Like, I just don't understand. So, and I did well in terms of building incredible connections in New York. And now, today, looking back, I know how those connections serve me. Like, I know the purpose of those connections. And so I came back to Toronto. I was crossing the border to go back. I was just about to sign a deal with Sony Entertainment for my own show out of Mumbai. And I was like, oh my God, like dreams are coming true. This is crazy. Called my mom, my dad. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to live in New York City. Like it was, my show was going to be at an old MSNBC studios. And we had done a tour. And I was like, this, there's no way this is happening. This is so crazy. And I think I remember it was an old Indian guy. I had to ask him at least five, six times. I'm like, are you sure? <laughs> this is so oh gosh, gosh. Gosh. Uh, what do you call it? I just had like very bad experiences with, unfortunately, uh, people are better culture up until that point.
2: The industry, the shady ogles.
1: Yeah. And I just didn't, I just did not think that it was going to go through. I was like, there's no way. And then they ended up going through. And so the, they started processing the paperwork. And then my friend from Vancouver called and he said, Hey, Sonia, I think you should come back because I'm originally from BC and uh, I think you should come back. Sean is, he only has a few days to live. He was diagnosed with angiosarcoma And I was like, done. Like, I'm that type of friend where you don't have to even utter more than a sentence. I'm there. And so I dropped everything, left everything in my apartment. My apartment was so small and it was right by Grand Central Station. It was like, you literally could hear the trains. Like, it was so terrible. You could just tell I was living on a budget and left everything there, went to Vancouver, stayed for the funeral, crossing the border to come back to get back on my flight to new york to finish all my paperwork and they detained me for 10 hours and then they went through like everything they went through my diary don't ask me why i had my diary on me i have no idea and but my diary was like da- my diary had everything like my dating stories, like <laughs> it had like gigs i did who i met and then they knew everything you did everything was so embarrassing and in one page of my diary it says that someone paid me $50. And that's all they needed to be like, you made money while you've been there. Look at all this, like you're writing in your journal. It seems like you're living there. And I was like, I promise you, like, I don't overstay my stay. And then uh, up until then, I never Googled myself and they go on Google and they put in Sonia Gill and they're like, You they Google <gasps> Yeah. And they're like, interesting. They're like, Sonia Gill. Is a television host lives in New York City. They're like, how did you Google yourself before? I'm like, I will always Google myself now. And so then that's it. So then they barred me for five years. They turned me around, and my dream of becoming the next Oprah was just gone, like down the drain. So that I was in BC, back in my own room, my old room, where I didn't want to end up back in BC. And I'm back in BC, sixty thousand dollars in student loan debt. I'm like in debt, like all these other things. And now I'm like, fuck, I don't know what to do at this point. Like it was really bad. I think for a good three months, I just, I was in a slum. And then it wasn't until my mom came into my room and she said, you are more powerful than this. This is not the end of the world. Like you're going to be fine. Just get your shit together. Basically in, in Punjabi is what she said. And so I got my shit together and then I started putting in all the different tools I had gathered during that time, like all the different skills I had gathered. And most of them were in editing, video editing, sound editing. I had learned so much in television, radio, but one of the things that I, that superseded everything was digital advertising and advertising on air, on television and how they advertise. And I had learned it inside and out. And that was What my blog did is my blog introduced small businesses to this world so that they can better understand how to get, remember back when they had banner ads on the website? So that's what my blog did. It was like, teach these guys. So I essentially, I just, I turned my resume into a digital, I didn't know it at the time. This wasn't even a word that anyone used back then, but I turned it into digital something. I forgot what it was called. And BCIT, which is a university out of BC, they called me and they had hired me to teach this new course that they were calling it back then, digital media for radio and television. Can you come and teach it? And I said, absolutely, done. So I went and I taught it. And then I knew, I was like, I'm onto something. This is going to be big. I need to get ahead of this. So I moved back to Toronto and we're sitting at a bar one night. Me and my business partner at the time. And this v, the VP of Sun Life is sitting on the left. And th- I'm telling my business partner, I'm like, listen, I'm onto something, I have a website, I know this digital social thing is gonna be really big. Like you're gonna be able to make money on these platforms pretty soon. We gotta do something. If I let you in 50-50 business partners, I didn't know equity back then. I was like let's just do this and he's okay so we're just kind of drinking and we're discussing and then these the we start talking to the that guy at the end of the bar and so it turns out he's a vp of sunlight and he's oh what do you guys do and like oh we run an agency called use us no incorporation, nothing and he's interested. Oh, interesting so like, what do you guys and then my business programs oh we we sell social media packages And then it goes, oh, wow, he goes, Sun Life actually really wants to get into this. We heard such good things. Can you guys get us likes on Facebook? And we were like, done, absolutely. So within five days, we had a pitch. we had never done a pitch before in our life. We had a pitch at the Regis on Blue and Young. And I remember scrambling and Googling, like, how do you do a pitch? How do you do pitch and advertising? And we like drove our beater truck or, uh, like around the block to park it so no one would see when we got out of this beater truck. And we landed the pitch. That was a, our first big client. And as soon as we ran to the client, we left, we're like, fuck, like we can't do this. <laughs> we need to hire people. And I don't even think that we charged, we didn't charge on that. But what we promised to do for them was we'll get you more likes on Facebook. We'll get you more customers that will understand what Sun Life, the Sun Life brand is. And we'll get you on Twitter. And I think LinkedIn was just coming about back then. And then that's it. Like I said, like you Googled digital marketing or social media marketing. We were one of two agencies that popped up on Google. And then within two years, we just, we completely, we got really busy. It was very hard at first because trying to convince someone why they needed to be on social media is kind of like how I imagine the metaverse people are feeling right now, like trying to get them on the metaverse. <laughs> but it is this metaverse. So, you, you know, it was like pulling teeth. Like we had to explain to people, you need to be on social media. You need to be on social media. And people didn't understand why they needed to be on social media. So we grew. And then by year three, I met Satish. By then, I think I had written two blogs. I'd done a bunch of speaking gigs. And then Satish is, I've heard of you. Why didn't you come by, check out my office. And then I went and checked out Satisha's office and I was really impressed. I was like, wow, this guy has this shit together. And he had done all these different campaigns and he had done all this, all these amazing clients, like clients that we really wanted in our roster. And then I think Satisha, we went back and forth on signing like a merger. We weren't sure. So we're like, let's just be homies, work in the same office, kind of piggyback off of each other, see what we need from each other. And then, and then. Towards my second year of being in your office, Satish. Um, so Satish comes up to me and he's like, hey, there's a an agency coming from Australia. They're sharing board, the boardroom with us. They're going to be back here in the boardroom. And I was like, yeah, cool. We were leaving at that point because I think that we had outgrown the space, Satish. I think we're like selling the space.
2: And I don't think I've ever told you this, but I'll confess now. But I think part of trying to bring Sonia into my company and a few others, I wasn't sure if I was one leg out of this business mm-hmm. or do I want to double down? Yeah. And I was trying to find an answer to that question. And I was trying to surround myself with as many different people as possible that were totally into the game where yeah. I can either see a vision where I'm all in for the next 10 years Yeah. no, I want to get the hell out. And I think right after you and I hung out and then what you're going to continue with, I decided I want to get the hell out. And I literally yeah. informed the company like a year later, I think.
1: The year right after me. Yeah. Yeah. And so actually it was thanks to you that I sold my company. Cause at that point I was also checked out. I was so done. I was like, I'm finished. It was funny. Like Satish and I, we fed up the same energy kind of like we knew where the industry was headed. And by that time it was, it was so saturated. Actually, no, it wasn't so saturated. It was getting saturated. And so this agency is sharing office space with Satish and I. It just so happens. These guys are as big as Ogilvy. Like the founder was, he had trained under some like crazy guys. And he was known as one of the creative geniuses in the world who wrote some of the most epic ad copy. And so I was getting into the elevator. Oh, sorry. No. Satish comes to me and he said, hey, these guys want to meet you. They might need your help on some social stuff. Do you think you can help them? So I walked in on my way home and I said, just popping my head in, I think I, I heard you guys need some help on your pitch. By this time, I knew what pitches were. And uh, they were like, yeah, can we like, can you spare 10 minutes? I went in, quickly told them what they should do, what they should be focusing on, the different KPIs, blah, blah, blah. And then one of the guys who was the VP, he's on his computer and he's Googling me again. This is like the story of my life. And he's Googling me and he looks up and he's, like, who the hell are you? Like, All <laughs> over Google. And he's like, oh my God, he's like, this girl, she's the biggest thing. And so I said, I got to go. And then I got in my, in the elevator, went home, didn't think anything of it. And then the next few days over that week, I just, I was going into all of these meetings with them to help them with their pitches. And so then I guess they took a liking to me and my team. And so they bought our book of clients. They, I got shares in their company. And then they also gave me a very beautiful chunk of money. And we exited and I was ready to just be done with it. And then as Satish said, like a year later, he was out as well. So that space served us really well. Like we both
2: yeah, manifested an exit together. Yeah.
1: Big time. <laughs> and so then uh, yeah. And then I I think I should have stopped at that point and I should have taken a breather. But I had just gotten out of an engagement. We had just called off the wedding. And I just I wanted to get away. I needed to get away. I needed to travel, and what I thought I was doing was taking a breather and just like getting away from everything. I was so burnt out that I—I I don't even think I had time to process exactly what happened. Like I didn't even celebrate that my company had gotten acquired. Like I didn't even understand that was a big deal. I was just going through so much, and so I came back from my travel, and then in 2016, I brushed off this old idea that we were trying to work on when we were using but we just never had enough time. And it was called Take My Sadi, which it was like the rental economy, rent the runway, but for South Asian items. And it was like this, for sure this has legs. And it did have legs. We baked it. We hired some team out of it in India to, which never ever will I ever do again. And we launched the app. And if there's anything I'm really good at, it's marketing. So getting the customers to the app wasn't a big deal. We're on radio stations. We were in Cineplex Studios with our video ad. We were everywhere. And this is like back, this is six years ago when it was easy to put an ad out on Facebook and get attention. And then we launched and very quickly, I realized the ever-ending rabbit hole of ever non-ending rabbit hole of the tech world where it's you think you have control over your tech, you think you have control over product, you have no control over it at all. Trying to build something yourself, not knowing tech is the worst thing ever. I don't wish it upon anybody. So just segueing off of that and saving you five years. So I'm just going to fast forward five years. I went through five years of tech hell is what I call it. I went developer after developer people promising me like the world telling me they could do xyz bring all of these features i wanted to life and i re- it took me again for four years to realize that everyone talks a big game no one can produce like it's very hard and then in 2020 uh we pivoted hard during the pandemic we realized we don't want to just be this South Asian platform. We knew that there was something bigger. And I knew because the types of people I was being introduced to that were coming my way and the types of people that wanted, my, wanted equity in my company were very big names. And I knew I had to think bigger. So we pivoted hard. Now the model essentially is that we want to do what Sheen, have you guys heard of Sheen? in China. So Shein, S-H-E-I-N, they're one of the biggest fast fashion companies to come out of China. So we want to do what Shein did in China, but we want to do it for merchants in India, but we want to keep production quality, price, and trust at the forefront. The other thing is we are a Shopify aggregator. So we only integrate Shopify websites. We let the merchant control their brand so that the merchant has full access to the customer. And we're giving the merchant in India full access to Western consumers on a niche platform. So you're not having to search all these different places for unique items thinking, oh my God, is like this thing actually going to show up to my doorstep? Is this what it's going to look like when it comes to my door? And that's one of the biggest problems that Sheen has right now is what you order on Sheen is not what you are going to get. But people are okay with that because the prices are so ridiculously low. Uh,
0: the risk of offending you, Sonia, are you the Etsy for fashion?
1: No. So we, were, We I would say, right. it's, a, it's a good question. I would say in 2019, 2019, 2020, if you would ask me this question back then, I would say, yes, that's kind of what we're trying to do. But no. Etsy. We kind of left that in 2019, 2020. We are the, there's only two sites that do this out there. One is called List, L-Y-S-T, and another one is called Farfetch. And there's only three Shopify aggregators in the world. We are one of them.
2: So I like to think of it in a different perspective. What is like the number one problem your platform is solving? Is it convenience? Is it choices? Is it ease of purchase and delivery? What is the product fit?
1: It's trust. So when you order online, internationally, you are always wondering, is this thing going to show up? How it looks like on on the screen. So ultimately we're solving for trust. Naturally from trust is going to come pricing and all those things that come customer service. We have customer service on lock right now as well we'll refund you, no questions asked. You don't have to worry about that. And then I think one other one I'll add in there is quick shipping, because everyone is all about this quick shipping. So by us only integrating with Shopify and Shopify having a global market division, they've already solved for quick shipping. So it allows us to piggyback on their distribution centers to have things shipped to North America much more quickly than if we were to do it ourselves. Like one of the greatest pieces of advice that I have gotten on this journey just before we decided to pivot was build 80% out of the box. And that's exactly what we did. So we built on a headless e-commerce platform. I gave them 20% equity. I didn't even care at that point. I was like, I'm so far into this journey. Take the equity. I don't care how much, like I got a lot of hack and people were like, oh my God, it's too much equity. What are you doing? But. At this point, if I cash out with a few million dollars in my bank account, that's not what I'm after. Okay, did I create a good product? Do my customers like this product? Did I do my job? Did the vision pull me forward? Can I, that Cummins and Partners thing, you take that out of here. Did I do that? That's my biggest thing. So if Mm. these guys, my equity partner, are also building their product at the end of the day. Then I helped them while they were helping me. And I can sleep well.
2: So sorry, Dion, I don't know if you had a question, but I'm fascinated because I've seen some of your early journeys and then we've lost touch in the last few years as you were doing the second and third different rounds. If you look back in hindsight as a gift, what are some of the things that you're doing differently now that sort of you've learned on the job in terms of hiring, sort of equity decision you've made and approaching sort of fundraising and things differently, how has your approach as a leader changed? within the same concept
1: before i was hiring for speed now i hire for expert knowledge like the people that are on my team are so smart so bloody smart i think my husband here is like their names all these okay i get it they're smart i'm like no you don't understand we dropped out of these guys dropped out of medical school to go and work for tech firms like these they're brilliant so if there's anything that I've done differently, I would, hands down, I would say that. And then I think the other thing that I did to your point, Satish, is the equity portion. Because when I was building Usus, I didn't understand the equity portion. I did I wasn't building my company to sell it. It just ended up selling. So now that I'm aware of how equity works, I'm, I've been burned, I've gone through it, like all that great stuff that happens. I, as long as I am like just above 50, I'm good. Just help me build my company and let's build this as lean as possible for as long as possible without getting capital injections left, right, and center. That's where my head's at right now.
0: So I must just tell you, Sonia, listening to that backstory, I've got a shitload of questions. I'm gonna try. My God, I sat here and it's like watching a movie. It's just so cool from a blueberry farm and you bullshitted your way and, yeah, and then you end up and you own a big tech company now. But I'm going to ask a few questions if you don't mind. So you spoke about, I think it was with a radio station where you took a chance. And then you and your business partner were sitting in the pub and you pitched to Sun Life without having actually a proper business. You just took that chance. How important is it to actually to fuck it. I'm taking a chance or actually not even think things through. How much value is it in that? And how important is that for the journey and the creation of
1: opportunities for entrepreneur? So to put your blinders on is very valuable because if you put your blinders on, that means you're listening to your gut, right? You're just like, no, I'm going to do what I know I have to do. And hopefully while you're doing that, you're present. I, in this part of my journey, I do take a lot of advice from a lot of people. But I still make my own decision at the end of the day. It's going to be for the company. I think when you're building, you go, you just got to keep going. There's, a, I'll pull the quote for you, but it's like, perseverance, if success is, oh, I forgot what, if success is the outcome of perseverance, therefore success equals timing plus grit, right? So- you've got to have grit and it does come down to timing. So like when i built the first two iterations, my timing was off because when I was building the first iteration, which was like the Rent the Runway for the South Asian world, three years later, all these Rent the Runway for the South Asian world started popping up. Some took hold, but they're not taking hold until now because now people are finally okay with renting South Asian items. Back when I was, Way too early because people's qu- main questions were, "If I rent this, this is it going to smell like curry?" So, <laughs> I didn't know what to say. My answer, I was like, "I don't know. It might. Who knows? It might even smell-. But like, people have now six years later solved for that. So, I this happens to me quite often in life. Is I sometimes I'm too early on things. I think of things before they happen, and then people are trying, still trying to understand it. Whereas now finally where I'm at with the link, it's not like we're reinventing the wheel. It's been done. We're just applying it to a different culture.
2: So we've got 10 minutes left to hit to our time slot. I wanted to just talk about a state of mind for a second because, you know, I was given a, a mentorship sort of keynote thing over the weekend. And w- one of the questions was like, can you be in an entrepreneur mind state at any point in your life? Or is there certain like, maturity you got to hit before you want to do your own thing and I was trying to think about that in my own context and I realized I've got three three major themes in my life first few businesses was around survival because similar to you I got kicked out of my house for being a good kid yep I didn't want a job so a lot of my early business ideas how do I survive how do I pay rent yep then my second phase blue band and, and even Maybe they see us to a certain level that you know of. It was all about wealth. I've had a taste of wealth. I'm like, wow, okay, how do I become wealthy? Whatever that meant. Not Lambos and popping bottles, but you know, I can afford to eat out every night and be okay mm-hmm. in life. Now I'm in a third stage, which I didn't think I'd ever start a business at this point. Like you, I was like 2017, blue band's done. I'm good. Yeah, I've, I've, yeah. I, but then I'm making more money. What country can I move to where my dollar was stretched so I don't have to keep working? And then I found purpose and school year was very purpose driven. So I went through this phase of like survival and then wealth and then purpose. Do you have a trend? And this is also maybe to you too, Dion, where you are now versus where you were. But do you have any type of trend you see in, in the decisions you made and where you were in life?
1: Delusional? I don't know. <laughs> Vival?
2: Delusional?
1: Like seriously, sometimes I think that I'm like, am I just delusional? Because like, it's very hard. It is very hard to find like-minded individuals with good hearts that are grounded, but also want to chase these bi- big dreams. It's very hard. So sometimes I wonder, like, am I delusional? Maybe I'm fucking delusional. I'm, I'm reading this book right now. On, it's called Billionaire Loser, or no, Billion Dollar Loser. It's the biography on Adam Newman. You have to watch it. Do not. He just came out with a series called We Crash. We're um, Yeah. I was gonna say don't match it until you read the book. Um, but sometimes reading those types of books and when he's making I get it. And she was delusional. I don't know. Like it's hard to answer, like if there is this theme. Or maybe
2: another way to ask this on is what's motivating you now? Like the motivation in Oh, that's, an easy, that's an, e- like, an easy one for me. The motivation like what's motivating you now to still be yeah. delusional?
1: <laughs> Death mo- motivates me a lot these days. Yeah. The last, yeah, for the last year, I am constantly thinking of how short life is. I just woke up one day and I'm 40, and I'm not going through midlife crisis. But I was like, "How did this happen?" I probably have another amazing 30 years left to do the shit that I want to do, to live my life, and to just leave it all behind. And I ask myself, if you have 30 years left in you, because right now between 40 and 60, they call this the golden years, okay? Did I leave it all on the ground? Did I do my absolute best? Did I put it all there? Did I, was I in the best shape? Was I mentally fit? Did I meet enough people? Did I make enough money? Did I travel enough? Did I treat people well? All of those things, constant motivation like constant. I will, I used to fucking hate waking up at 6am, but I will wake up at 6am now because I'm like, no, I have to, because there's only so many hours in a day. You look, you look at how fast, let's take, let's take Layla as an example. Layla woke up and she's 15 now. That's how fast life is. Like, it's crazy. So I think if death does not motivate you, then I, I, I don't know. I just, I feel like what are you what's your what are you living for? Because we can't live for money anymore. It's not about money.
0: That is so okay, I can wait for everyone to jump in. Hey. I can so relate to that. So I just turned 50 the other day and I woke up with my wife and I said to my wife, like this. I'm now gonna be unapologetic. I have lived to this point. I don't know how many more years I've got. I'm not gonna say no to opportunities, to chance. I've done everything cautiously Mm -hmm. you got kids and you want to provide for your kids my children are at the point now where they finish in school they need to stand on their own Mm feet. you know what fuck it i don't know how many years i've got yeah i'm gonna make it count so i can completely relate to that yeah yeah absolutely well
2: the counter side to that for both of you to maybe talk about is the idea of risk as we get older right i sometimes have anxiety that the life i've built the wife and the kids and the house and the business Mm -hmm. Is completely opposite to my energy and my risk and take over the world. But I can't do that anymore. And it wasn't like I was handed this thing. I consciously built this life. So the point is, when we have older entrepreneurs listening to this thing, there's no age limit to when you can Mm -hmm. do this. They feel a different pressure when they come with the baggage of life.
1: 100%. Could you imagine when my husband first met me, I had sold a company. So I was All there. And then over the years that money started to go away. And so now I'm in my 40s and this guy's looking at me and he's like, is this thing gonna work? We have dual income to this relationship. Like I have this other pressure. Whereas when I was single and I was building my first company, I have now this other pressure. Not that he pressures me, but it's still as a partner when you're married, you do you feel like I have responsibilities. Like I don't have children, but you know, I want to add to that benefactor that we're creating. So I think in your 40s, oh my God, we're just like, should I be doing that? I, I don't know, on a beach? Should I not maybe just go get my real estate license and just go make a bunch of money? And just, I thought <laughs> of it all. But I was like, no, this is who I am. This is what I live for. This is what makes me happiest. And I'm not going to lie, like last year when we were pivoting and I didn't know what direction to go in, I did. I opened up Humber College on my computer and I registered for my real estate course. And I did course one and I was like, that's $500 down the drain I never see because I was like coming a real estate agent, but this. like back to like course two, three, four, five. And I was like, I can't, I just, I cannot. So I really feel that like for people that are starting off in their forties, all the way to 50, like fifties and sixties is not the same as what our parents went through. Fifties and sixties is still pretty, pretty young, but there's so much to consider. There's so much to consider. One thing I will say, though, is at this age, there's so much confidence and so much, like, I don't give a shit attitude that comes along with it, which is nice. And so when I am on these calls or with whether it's investors or I'm pitching, if you want to fucking be a part of this be a part of it, you don't want to be part of it, I'm good. It's okay. We'll each later. But Liz, I would have been, can you, if company's going to go down, I it's so much money to, like... With, so like CRA Canada, they could take me Where's now. I'm just like, fuck, you want to give me a million bucks? Give it to me. My husband's a millionaire. He has to work me. It's fine. I'm kidding. It Look,
0: I know. Sorry, Satish. I know that we've run out of time, but this conversation has been riveting. Can I ask two more questions if you don't mind? Yes. I actually think that these are, I think that they will add a lot of value to our listeners. So we're talking about tech space at the moment. There's a big Focus on tech companies, and that's where the growth is. Earlier, when you were giving us your story, there, Sonia, you mentioned that not having the knowledge of tech was a big issue. Tech, actually, you never controlled tech. You spoke about all those the concerns around tech, right? My question to you then is: based on your experience, if you've got someone out here now who's started a tech company, what is the due diligence or the things that they should be looking out to give them good start within the tech space and to prevent some of the challenges that you encountered.
1: Yeah, I think the best way for me to answer this is, and I had to learn this the hard way, is if you can't build your idea on a on a platform like Wix, Wix offers so many different solutions, yeah. or on a platform like Contentful, there's just so many different platforms that are out there. Then your idea is probably, you're probably thinking way too far ahead of 150 different features that your customers don't even know that they want. So really lean it out, keep it super simple in the beginning, build on top. So build 80% out of the box, essentially. You don't need us, you don't need all these like pretty like tech people. And because the thing is, what's going to happen is you hire one dev or one CTO, and Satish is going to nod his head, they become so they become like the security police around their code. And they don't want to share that with anyone. And if you are you have a falling out with that developer, yep. whoever comes in afterwards, they're not going to understand this whole kitchen sink over here. They're going to be like, listen here, Sonia, I can build it better for you. I will yep. like start from scratch and now you're another six months. That's right. Which is, that's what happened to me. And that's why I advise so many friends now that are in the same situation, like get out of it as fast as you can. Just do what you're good at and do that on any tech platform. Prove out the concept, raise your seat, raise your angel, and then go from there.
0: And I'm going to ask my last question now, and this goes for both of you, right? So we spoke about, Satish, so you reached the point where you didn't know whether you were in or out, and then you actually did exit. Sonia, you also said you just had enough and you also exited. What, I'm going to phrase this. Some people don't know when to exit. So my question to both of you is, if you're running a business, what are the signs that you need to look out for to actually say, you know what, it's time for me to think about my exit?
1: Oh, man. I think that if it gets to a point where your customers aren't saying anything, your potential customers, like you haven't done any sort of due diligence around your customers and you have zero feedback and the feedback is kind of, eh. It's like negative a little bit and it doesn't match the tech that you're building or it doesn't match the output and you've pivoted and pivoted and still not matching. I think at that point you're you have to you gotta look at okay, what's not working here and where does my expertise in this lie? So for example, for me, my the customer feedback always matched the tech. It's just the tech was just terrible. Like it was always came down to the tech. And even now that the customer feedback, even the merchant feedback is absolutely incredible. I know my expertise as a marketer, as a growth hacker, I can execute this platform. I know it's going to work. But if I wasn't a marketer, I didn't know these things, but I was just kind of like an Adam Newman. Then yeah, look what happened to him, right? He still cashed out wealthy, but I th- you got to base it on feedback. You have to base it on feedback. There's some people, I know a few of these types of people, they're, for lack of a better term, their egos are so big that they just refuse to listen to anybody. And I think when you refuse to listen to anyone, you have a problem. Satish, you might want to.
2: Yeah. When you were talking, I was thinking about it. When we sold the company, we were very profitable. But I realized I build businesses to discover more about myself because there's no guarantee what would happen to business. I can guarantee I'm going to change from A to B. And I think in that particular model, being an agency owner, the things that I wanted to solve was break the stereotype. I wanted to really give people opportunity to be their first job. I wanted to discover my creative voice. And all these things were locked up behind this certificate that I got as computer scientist, And that's all you can do. And so I think when I woke up one morning and I was like, man, I'm now the most expensive sales guy for this company with nothing more to add. And it just so happens, life throws you a sign. And I happened to go to a meeting that day. And I walked into a strategy session, just excited to see what this new client project is. And our CEO at that time is, oh, nice to see you. But you know, every time we see you, we're not making money for us. And I went back to my office and I was like, I don't want to be the sales guy. Yeah. That's not what I started this company for. If my yeah. value is only money, I've, I've grown this company. And, and then once... That seed gets planted, it attacks every other good thing. Right? Yeah. you can't see anything else but that. And so for me, the reason why Daisy Fest is still around 16 years is I'm still in love with the problem. And I'm madly in love with Sculio's problem, which I think will be like a 20 years thing, because education globally is. So I, I need that, and every time and so I think when I look at that older model of survival and sort of wealth and purpose have always been in all the other two. Because without it, it's really hard to function for me. And so Mm -hmm. once that kicked in, I'm like, I got to go buy us out because somebody else wants to be the greatest sales guy for this idea, Mm -hmm. not me.
1: I agree. I absolutely agree. What what also
2: means I'm used to, I'm comfortable with eating like shit and like just suffering. And when money is not there, like it doesn't bother me because I'm not chasing it.
1: (laughs) It's so funny because I say, my husband, he's there to support me no matter what, right? He puts a roof over my head. Thank God. (laughs) Thank God I'm so glad to live here. But I but I purposely say to him, I say, do not give me anything. I don't want a credit card. I don't want a bank. I don't want, ne- I want to struggle because it's in my struggle that I'm going to come out on the other side of this. And I know for a fact that if like I was kind of living this like cushy life, I don't know if like I would have this like, I would be like, it's okay. It's okay today. I'm fine today. But I constantly have this natural fuck. You got to bring something to the table. And I love it. It drives me, keeps me hungry.
2: I have one last question. Sorry, go ahead, Dion. No, I didn't have a question. I, I was just going to say, I follow Sonny on Instagram. And if you guys haven't, there's a link in the bio to go do so. But you're a big reader. So tell us like your top two or three books that if I want to be an entrepreneur, I should at least read them first.
1: Shoe Dog was one of my favorites. That's a, a an incredible book, really good book. The Purple Cow. Seth, Go- Seth Godin. actually any book by Seth Godin is incredible and then a few books I'm reading right now just finished a billion billion dollar loser, which was really good. it was the lesson there was in this the art of the sale of being the best salesperson and that's how he hooked all these investors was by being the best salesperson and he was gifted at doing it. I'm reading a book called Hooked and i just started a book called nice women don't get the corner office uh, the reason being is because i've been told i am too nice <laughs> so, <laughs> this book came recommended by one of my mentors and she said you need to read this book i have a very hard time like i'm very bubbly i just want people to have fun but sometimes i get taken advantage of more taken for granted i should say so this book was came recommended to me so i would suggest that to any of your female listeners.
2: Very cool. very. Cool. I'm going to give it to all of our team members. We are 95% female powered at Scuio.
1: Oh my God. Incredible. Recommend the book.
2: So it'd be great. We'll add it to our book club. Yeah. Uh-huh. This is Sunny. Thank you so much for joining us, man. Everything oh my God. I- thanks so much for having I me. I know your narrative. There's always more and there's always <laughs> new perspective. And I truly enjoy listening to you share. Year One is hosted by Dion Kloppers and Sathish Bala and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It is engineered by Bloomex. For more Year One content subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit BloomX.io to join us on Discord.